Amen. All right, so without a whole lot, since we got a lot to go through, I want to briefly recap what we discussed last week before we jump into these verses, since we're in the middle of this chapter, and we're going to try to finish it. And the first thing for us to remember is that the word revelation, by which this book earns its title, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, um, it, it, this word is translated from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means to unveil or to uncover. And um, so when Jesus came to John, as we read about last week, and we're going to continue to read about this week, as Jesus came to John in order to reveal these things that must shortly take place, as what Jesus said to John, what we know is, is that he, Jesus, was pulling back the curtain that is concealing the future in order that we might know what is to come. And one of the most important things that the book of Revelation uncovers for us is not just future events, but our Lord and Savior, and covers and reveals for us the, the nature and the person of Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the grave in, in all of his resurrected glory. And as we study through this book of Revelation, like I mentioned last week, Jesus as seen, is seen as the conqueror. He's seen as the king of kings, as the bridegroom who comes for the church. He's seen as the redeemer of the whole earth who holds, I love this, he holds the keys of Hades and death in his hands. And he's ultimately seen as the mighty judge who will judge the world in truth and in righteousness. And in addition to these things, the book of Revelation also reveals the future fulfillment of God's plans and God's purposes in, in and for this world that are still yet to come, things that are taking place in our lifetime right now. And these are the things which, which quote-unquote, must shortly take place that Jesus said that he had come to talk to, to John about, to reveal to him. And these events that have been recorded in detail include... Uh, uh, um, uh, these that have been recorded in detail um, tell us about, if you're taking notes, it tells us about the rise of the Antichrist, okay? It, it tells us about the future restoration of the nation of Israel. And, and what I mean, not just as a nation within the land, but the spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel, where they will bow the knee and recognize Jesus Christ as God's people, as, as the resurrected, risen Savior. Um, they, it also tells us about the rise of nations and of kings of this world against God. It tells us about the outpouring of God's judgment upon them and upon those who reject Jesus. And it ultimately tells us about the completion and the final destruction of all of creation as we know it. And we know the Bible talks about, again in the book of Peter, about how everything around us is going to burn with a fervent heat, even to all of the elements. And, and there's a day coming when everything we know it, as we know it, will be no more. And in light of all of these things, this book is perceived by most to be a revelation that paints a bleak picture of future events, Right? Death and destruction and doom and gloom and all these things, apocalyptic things with, with demons and angels and, 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 and earthquakes and you know, great hail coming from, from the sky and, 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 and death and all these things. And however, guys, within this book, within this book which reveals what has been concealed, we also see, and we don't want to miss this, we also see great demonstrations of God's mercy and of God's grace. 
Considering we read about God's final attempts to save those who would be saved from this judgment that is to come, as we are told, how God will even in the midst, even in the middle of all of these things that are going on, these judgments, that God is going to appoint and send 144,000 witnesses to go throughout the world and to testify of God's salvation to all the inhabitants of the world and, 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 and we know that it's the same message, that they can have this salvation through their faith in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we know that God will send two additional witnesses, men from heaven. He's going to send two additional witnesses from heaven down to earth who will stand in Jerusalem and they will speak the, the truth against this lying and deceiving Antichrist who is trying to deceive many. Not only this, but there will be times, think about this, when God will send angels who will move through the sky, it says that everybody on the world will be able to see them. They'll recognize them for what they are, angels, messengers of God. And they will move through the sky and they will cover the whole earth, warning those who dwell upon the earth about these judgments that are to come, calling them to repent, calling them to turn away, calling them to be saved from what's coming. Furthermore, we know that the book of Revelation also pulls back the curtain so that we might see the future plans of God in regards to a new heaven, the Bible says, and a new earth that God will create for those who love him. So for those who have received God's grace and forgiveness through his faith in his son Jesus Christ, we see that the things, that the things being uncovered in this book, they give us hope. They give us joy and peace for what the future holds for us. On the other hand, on the other hand, for those who will not put their faith in Jesus and who will not receive God's grace and forgiveness, this book stands as a warning. It stands as a warning as it reveals things that should at the very least, I think, cause people to consider their future and reconsider putting their faith in the resurrected Jesus who is the only one who can save a person from these judgments that will come. Now we know that the Apostle John was told and shown these things that are written in this book. We talked about this last week. While he was on the island of Patmos, exiled there, held as prisoner sometime between 86 and 96 AD. And it was first, this book, these letters were first sent to the seven churches in Asia with the intentions of these prophecies, these instructions, these warnings that we're going to read about found within this book, they were sent with the intention of bringing a blessing to those who would read them and obey their messages. And these same blessings, we're told, are available to us. These same blessings, seven specific ones that are mentioned throughout the whole book, these blessings are available to us when we read and obey its message. And in light of this, last thing that I want to remind us of before we dive into the other, these other verses is that the overriding theme of this entire revelation, of this entire message, the, 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 the um, uh, overriding theme is simply this, the return of Jesus Christ who will defeat all evil and establish his kingdom here upon this earth. Everything gets funneled back through that. Everything that we read and study about. And in these remaining verses of chapter 1, John sets out to tell us three different things. Okay? That's how we're going to break down the last few verses of this chapter. John sets out to tell us first about, about the things that he heard, according to verse 10, the things that he saw, according to verse 12, and then what he did in response, according to verse 17. 
okay? With that, verse 9 says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom in patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one stood one like the Son of Man, clothed with garments down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace, and his voice was as of the sound of many waters. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Of Hades and death, excuse me. Write these things and which these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. We'll come back to that verse many times throughout this book. So you can underline that, highlight that. Uh, put an asterisk by verse 19, whatever you do, key that verse out as a reference point to come back to often again, okay? And then verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Um. Andy, would you mind turning just the fan portion of the heaters off on both sides for me? Just turn them to auto. Thank you. All right, guys, let's look back to, 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 to the beginning of these verses. Now, in these first verses, specifically in verses 9 through 11, as we begin to break this down and, and, and take it in bite-sized chunks, what I want to point out is that, that John, not only is John telling us what, his, what he had heard, but in these first three verses, he's telling us, of where he was and where he went. And, and I don't want us to miss that. Often we get focused on the things that Jesus was speaking to him, and we're going to talk about that. But he sets the stage for us by telling us where he was and where he went. Okay? Where he was and where he went. And here in verse 9, John says, for, first of all, for us, that he was, right, on the island of Patmos. Hey guys, this is where I was. It was on the island of Patmos. You knew while I was here. I've been in the great tribulation with you. This persecution that had been coming upon the church as a result of Titus, this new emperor. And, and we know that he had been arrested. He's all, you know, I've been arrested for, for proclaiming the word of God, for standing up for Jesus Christ. He says, I was here on the island of Patmos and that I had been, pro, that I had been exiled for proclaiming the word, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus being the only Lord and God. And we discussed this last week. I pointed out that the Roman emperor, Titus Flavius, 
He was the one who had John arrested and sentenced him to death for not worshiping him, that emperor, as the Lord and God. And I talked about that John ended up on the island because first they tried to kill him by putting him in a, in a, in a vat, a, 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 a pot of, of, of boiling water, or excuse me, a boiling hot oil. And when they couldn't kill him, then they exiled him to this island, the island of Patmos, which is located uh, in the Aegean Sea, about 70 miles from Ephesus. Has anyone ever been there, by the way? Has anyone done the Greek tours yet? No, I hope to be able to do that one day and maybe take a group and we'll go and we'll trace the footsteps of Paul. Wouldn't that be cool? Okay, so maybe we'll do that. Um, but uh, he had been pastoring, we know, the church of Ephesus, uh, the Ephesian church. And so that's where he was at and that was all the things leading up to where he had got. And this is important to note exactly where John says he was at because if you look at the next verse, if you look at verse 10, John proceeds to tell us where he went. This is where I was at, and this is where I went when he says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when he heard the voice that sounded like a trumpet coming from behind him. Now, this reference to being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, most commentators will say that it means one of two things. Okay, the first, They first say uh, that it could be a reference to a day of the week, right? Specifically to Sunday, the same day in which we worship the Lord, the day that the early church had set aside to gather for the corporate worship. And we refer to this sometimes on our own as this is the Lord's day, right? And the early church had committed to gathering on Sundays because Sunday was the day of the week that Jesus had risen from the grave. And on Sunday, they gathered together to worship, to remember, and to celebrate the fact that Jesus had risen and that he was Alive, it was referred to as the Lord's Day. And for these same reasons, we as the church today continue to gather together on Sundays to worship Jesus and to celebrate the fact that he's alive. And in light of this, I think it's possible that John uh, could be telling us that he was in the Spirit. Maybe sometimes that can refer to a state of being where you're in prayer and you're in worship, right? You're in, you're in the Spirit, and, and then on Sunday, and, and when Jesus appeared to him. So John could be saying, hey, I was praying, I was worshiping on the Lord's day, and it was in the Spirit, and the Lord came to me. Now, that's one interpretation of what we could be reading here. But the other possible thing that John could be referring to, and I think it's the probable thing by telling us that he was in the Spirit in the, on the Lord's day, the, 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 the interpretation I think that is the most likely explanation is that he, John, by this statement, was referring to a time of future events, also known as the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. And in this future period of time, the Old Testament and the New Testaments both foretell um, uh, foretells of, and, and also I think that the, 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 this, this day of the Lord is the day, the time that the book of Revelation actually accounts for us in detail. And when we study both the Old Testament and the New Testament and the book of Revelation, we come to understand that this day of the Lord begins with a seven-year period of time. Talked about this a little bit last week. That's referred to as a, a, a time of tribulation, a period of tribulation. A time when God's wrath is being poured upon, upon the earth. But the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day as we see it mentioned in Scripture, it also includes a thousand year period of time that follows these seven years of tribulation. 
And during these thousand years, Jesus, we're told, has returned to the earth and he has set up his kingdom in his throne here upon this earth to rule over all the inhabitants, all of the kingdoms. This is where we see him depicted as the king of kings, the lord of lords uh, in, in a literal sense. And if John is specifically referring to these future periods of time that, that encompasses as a whole the day of the Lord, then what he is telling us is that when, he was on the, that when he was on the island of Patmos, that he was taken by the Holy Spirit, that he was in the Spirit, taken by the Spirit, and catapulted forward through time and shown these future events that will take place on the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. The things that are spoken of both in the Old and the New Testament and then detailed for us here in this book of Revelation. And I believe, for whatever it's worth, you can take it or leave it, but I believe that this is the incorrect interpretation of verse 10. And here's one of the reasons why. There's a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons why is because when, when we read on and we're told about these events that will take place on the day of the Lord or on the Lord's day, we see that John is constantly referring to himself in the first person. And this lets me know, it lets us know that he personally witnessed these things. He just wasn't, it wasn't just like a vision came to him and then he was reporting back. It's like, I, John, saw. I, John, was there. This kind of, this kind of testimony that's being brought forth, that he personally witnessed these things that come to pass. In other words, John isn't simply telling us what someone else had told him, um, Rather, this is the testimony of the things that he saw. That's what he'll tell us. Write down these things which you have seen, is what Jesus would say. And that's what John does. And that's part of the reason why I believe that, that John was taken by the Holy Spirit, transported through time to these events that we're reading about. And as we read on, John tells us that it all began it all began when he heard a voice like a trumpet coming from behind him saying, now real quick, it wasn't like someone was standing behind John and like blowing a trumpet. Okay, we have to follow the, the, the language that's here. He said it was a sound like a trumpet. Has anyone ever snuck up behind you and you didn't know they were there and they spoke and it, and it startled you? They may have been doing that intentionally. That kind of happens sometimes in my house. And other times you're just like in your own little world doing your own little thing and it's like, whoa, I didn't know you were there. That's what's going on, but in a more awesome sense. And I want you to see that as we get this. And, and at the end of verse John, John, verse 10, the end of verse John, at the end of verse 10, John tells of hearing a voice, listen, a voice that he had not heard at this point a voice that he had not heard for more than 60 years. The voice of his friend and of his Savior, Jesus. Think about that. And apparently it startled him. It grabbed his attention. And, and this is when John said that the voice that he heard was like a trumpet that stood behind him. And we can all imagine, I think, what our reaction might be if we heard the voice of a long-lost friend unexpectedly coming from behind us. Someone who we dearly loved. Someone who we missed greatly. Someone who we were longing to see once again. Someone who said, um, I'm coming back. And I would suspect... 
that John was already in some state of amazement after being taken by the Spirit and moved into the future, I think we all would be, to the day of the Lord, right? But then having, then, but then, but then, then to have heard the voice of Jesus coming from behind him had to have been an unexpected thing. It had to have been also, I think, a very comforting thing. And an awesome thing. And I think each one of us, think about this, guys. Think about your loved ones who've passed away, who've gone ahead. I think each one of us who have ever lost a loved one can imagine what it is like when we will be reunited with them in heaven with our loved ones who have passed away and at that time when we get to hear their familiar voice once again. It's going to happen. And I think this is one of the many reasons for why the Bible tells us that heaven will be a place where there is everlasting joy. I think about my grandfather. I think about my dad. To hear their voice again, to turn around and to see them. And this is how I think it was in many ways for John. And in verse 12, John says, then I turned to see, wouldn't we all? Think about that loved one, that voice you haven't heard for so many years that you miss, that you long for, that you think about, that you maybe even dream about, turn around and there they are. It is you. And John turned and he said he saw the, turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, he says, he begins to describe this really awesome scene. He saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the, of the seven lampstands stood one like the Son of Man. And we're going to go into the description that, that he saw, that what this Son of Man looked like. And, and so after hearing the voice of Jesus who had identified himself to John here as he spoke is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Um, John turned around and he saw, what did he see? He saw the resurrected Lord, the glorified Savior with his own eyes. And as Jesus continued to speak to John, he gave him this instruction. Look in verse 19 there, I said this very significant verse that's key to the whole book that we're going to read about this whole revelation, he instructed him to write what he saw and then to send it to the churches in Asia. And hearing this voice of Jesus that John was familiar with, that was one thing, I think, but then to turn around, to see him whom he had heard, it would have been another thing considering the description of Jesus given by John in, this verse, in these verses. And based upon what John writes and what he tells us of what he first saw, it's clear that this figure that was now standing before him was not the same figure that John had last seen when Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. There's something different about you, Lord. <laughs> In other words, this was not the Jesus that John had remembered seeing because why? Because Jesus was now manifesting himself in all of his resurrected glory. He was revealing. He was pulling back the veil. And standing before Jesus, guys, let me, I don't want, I can't overemphasize this enough. Jesus wants, wants us to know who he is intimately, personally, in every aspect that's possible. He wants us, just like my wife, I desire to know my wife and my children intimately and personally and everything about them and I want them to know everything about me mostly there's some things that I don't want them to know about me they know anyway but you know Paul writes and he prays for the Colossians and he says at one point man I pray that you grow in your knowledge and the knowledge and the understanding of Jesus there's nothing better 
to have this experiential knowledge. And John has said this experiential encounter with a Jesus, a part of Jesus, this person of Jesus that he had yet not ever seen or known before. And Jesus is saying, tell everybody about me. Look, these things that I'm revealing to you. And Jesus wants us to know him in this way. And standing before John, John says, was this, was the son of man. And that's, that's not an arbitrary tra- statement. That's a title, and it's a specific reference. It was the Son of Man, he said, who was standing in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. John knew it was Jesus. He heard his voice. He spoke to him. He'll confirm to you who he was a little later on, just in case John didn't get it. He's all, he's all John, I'm, I'm the one who was dead and now alive. Okay? But, 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 but John automatically knew, because he knew his word, and he knew who Jesus was and who Jesus is, he, he made this connection. Instantly, it's like he said, it was the Son of Man standing before me. And, 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 and this reference to the Son of Man, guys, spoken here in verse 13, is an interesting title. Remember, this is a very Jewish book with very Jewish references. And looking back to the Old Testament, which is also Jewish, we see that this title, the Son of Man, it originates in the book of Daniel. John's referring to his very specific Instance, a very specific title that the Messiah, that the resurrected Lord in Jesus Christ owns. And in the Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, is where this title, the Son of Man, originates. And in that, it's not the only place it's used, it's used all over. Jesus even used this name for himself in many of the Gospels. And, and every time he does so, he's referring back to this passage of Scripture where it originates in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. And in that passage, listen, it's really, really cool. You can go there and read it. But in that passage, Daniel says he first saw, Daniel who had this vision, he saw the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. Okay? He said, I saw the Ancient of Days seated upon his throne. Daniel, Daniel got this look into heaven. And, and as he got to look into heaven, he saw God seated upon his throne, the Ancient of Days. It says that his garments were white as snow, and the hairs of his head was like pure wool. In fact, Daniel goes on to speak of God's throne. He said that fire, imagine this, fire came out from it like a stream. And then he says this, a thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And in the Jewish way of speaking, basically what the author of that, the writer, what Daniel's saying is he says this was a number that could not be numbered. That's what that language means. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, a number that could not be numbered. And in this heavenly scene, this mighty heavenly scene described by Daniel, which he saw, we're told that in this throne room, in God's throne room, there was a court just like it would be in the courtroom. Literally, that's what it's talking about with judgment, with jurisdiction. A court that had been seated and that there were books that were being opened up, Daniel said. And Daniel, he says, he continued to watch what was happening. And in doing so, he said this. He heard something. He heard pompous words. So here you have this incredibly humbling scene. God the Almighty sitting upon his throne in all of his majesty, an innumerable amount of, of angels ministering before him, fire coming from his throne, a court seated to be judged, and the most unlikely thing that would happen in this situation, I think Daniel says he heard, he heard pompous words. Pride. Pompous words being spoken. 
And he says, and the power or the beast, more specifically, Daniel says, who was speaking these pompous words was slain, and the rest of the beasts who were with the one who was speaking these pretentious words, they had their dominion taken away. That's what's going on in this scene. And at this point, Daniel said that he's, as he was watching this vision, these, these visions, he looked, and he says, I saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days. And when he was brought before him, the Son of Man was given an everlasting dominion. He was given glory, and he was given a kingdom which all peoples in all nations should serve him. And I think that's the reference to Philippians chapter 4, chapter 2, chapter 4, where it says that every knee will confess, or every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because God's highly exalted him. And this is what Daniel's speaking of. Daniel sees it happening. And John tells us, this is the person who came in the clouds before God that was given all this everlasting dominion in this kingdom. And, and he said, this is the person who he had seen when he turned around. The son of man that Daniel prophesied about. He said, I heard Jesus stood around. And there he was, the son of man that Daniel had prophesied about, standing before me. And he, according to verse 13, he was standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. And later in verse 20, we'll discover, because Jesus tells us we don't have to guess, this lampstand is symbolic. And it's symbolic as it represents the seven churches that John was to send this, this message to. And the lampstand that John is writing of seeing is simply called the menorah. Right? One lamp with seven branches. Okay, that's what's going on here. It's a Jewish book. This is the Jewish reference. And it would have been, I think, like the one that was constantly burning in, in the temple, the great menorah there. And, and, and it's significant that the churches, I think, here, as we look at some application for our own lives, it's significant that the church here in verse 20 is de depicted by this menorah, by this, this seven-lamp lampstand. Because it reveals, I think, and once again reminds us of how we are just the instrument that holds up and displays the light. And we know about the menorah that this lampstand, that the, 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 it wasn't like these where you had a little battery back here lighting it up. There was oil that was put into it, and that oil was lit. And oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. Even the power that brings forth the light is not us. It's the Holy Spirit in us, and Jesus is the light. In other words, we the church are not the light, but what are we to do? We're to lift up the light who is Jesus, the light who is inside us, and through the Holy Spirit to let that light shine through us into this dark world that we live in. Jesus says, you're the, you're the, you're the lampstand. The church is the lampstand. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5 spoke to the disciples and he said, Verse 16, let your light shine before men that you may, that they may see your good works. And again, this word over and over again, and glorify your Father in heaven. Do we glorify him by the way we live? Now, one of the other things that John goes on to tell us in verse 13 about Jesus is that he's clothed in a garment that went down to his feet and around his chest was this golden band. And some of you Bible scholars already know where we're going with this. And this description would have been very familiar to a Jewish audience. Because it's the exact kind of garment that was worn by the, Levit the Levitical priests when they were ministering in the temple. Even the high priest. The high priest, remember, he had this like really fancy adornment and the breastplate and the big hat. But when he was in the, 
the courtyard offering up the sacrifices, this is how he was dressed. A linen garment all the way down to his feet and then this golden band. And it points us to the fact, this first thing about our resurrected Jesus Christ is that, yeah, he's the son of man who, who's given all glory and to power and dominion and an everlasting kingdom, but guys, he's also our priest. He's wearing the garments of a priest. He's our high priest who intercedes on our behalf, the Bible tells us. And he lives forevermore before God, ministering for us forever before the throne of God. And you know what? And when the Levite priests ministered in the temple, they wore the same kind of garment that went down to their feet with the band of gold. But listen, that band of gold that's described here, it was always worn in one of two places. Two different positions. Firstly, when they were offering up the sacrifices in the temple, it was worn down around their waist. It was a utilitarian kind of thing. It girded up their, 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 their garment so that they could be about the business that they were doing. But at other times, and think about that real quickly. I mean, for, for anyone that does laundry, I was going to wear a white shirt this morning, and I go to put it on, I didn't wash it, and there's like this stain on it. I'm like, darn it, good thing I got a blue shirt. But you got these guys in the temple, they were ministering and they were killing and slaughtering animals, right? That blood would have been a very, very prominent, um, prayer, worn prayer prominently upon them. And, and even though they had their waist girded with this gold band, it didn't keep the blood off of them. They're, they still got dirty. But, but that's where it was, was firstly worn as they sacrificed in the temple around their waist. But at other times, it was worn up around their chest like we read of here of Jesus. And this was due to the fact that priests were also called to be the judges. They were a judge. And, and when they were in the role of judge, this gold band then was worn up around their chest. And so here we see that Jesus is coming as the high priest who ministers to the churches, but the fact of the matter is, is he's also coming as a judge who will not only judge all of mankind, but who will first judge the church? And this is the first thing that is being done in the book of Revelation. As we read in, in next week and the week after that into chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, we are told about what Jesus has against each one of these seven churches in Asia. This I have against you. Get it right, he says. And in light of this, I think we should remember 1 Peter 4, verse 17, which directly follows this, this admonition by Peter to, to glorify God. It says this in verse 17. It says, For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins first with us, what, what will be the end of those who will not obey the gospel of God? In other words, as the people stand and look at us and go, man, look at how God's disciplining his own kids, they're supposed to go, if, he, if he's willing to do that with them, what does that mean for us who've rejected him? That's the logic there. And John also describes Jesus as having this head of hair that is white like wool and, and white as snow, and this, this head of pure white hair is symbolic and, and, and I think it's pretty obvious, it's symbolic of the purity of Jesus, and we know that Jesus is, is perfect, he's sinless. He's the, the Lamb of God who is without spot, without blemish, and even though he was tempted in every way like we are, we remain, he remained without sin. And the resurrected Lord in Jesus Christ is, is pure and holy. And in Hebrews 4, verses 4, 
14 through 16, it, it, it affirms this, and it says, Seeing then that we have a great, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, that profession of our faith in him. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in, was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And all of that to say this, the author of Hebrews says, let us therefore come boldly to that throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And looking back to the vision of Daniel there in Daniel chapter 9, that vision of Daniel, we need to keep in mind that Daniel, Daniel also described the ancient of days, God who sat upon the throne, uh, having this same kind of, of hair of head, of, of white hair upon his head, when he described God the Father who was sitting upon the throne. And, and, what, and what is being showed to us is, that the, is nothing more than what we read in Hebrews chapter 1 and many other places, is that all throughout the Bible is the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, is also the expressed image of the Father. And if we've seen the Son, we've seen the Father. Jesus is God in the flesh. Go read Hebrews chapter 1, the very beginning of it, verses 1 through 3, and you'll see that. And Jesus is, is God is revealed to us by the Son who came in the flesh. God in a human body. And at the end of verse 14, John also tells us, look here, this is an amazing scene when you think about it. Hollywood could never do this, this scene justice. It couldn't. I thought actually about trying to find a picture on the internet and put it up there. And you know what? This is one of these things where you just need to let your imagination run wild. Because even the imagination's not going to accurately, can't even get you close to what we're reading here, but let it go wild. A white head, white hair, dressed in this garment, and out of his, his eyes are like fire. I can't imagine what that, what that would look like. I mean, I can try to picture it, but it's, it's a phenomenal thing. And in verse 15, it says that his feet were like brass. These two pieces of his body, his head and his feet that were revealed, one was shining like brass that had been refined in the furnace, and then his eyes were like fire. And fire and brass in Scripture, they're always symbolic of two things, wrath and judgment. Always. And because Jesus was seen by John to have eyes that look like flames of fire and feet that look like pure brass, we again see that when Jesus comes, he will bring with him the wrath and the righteous judgment of God. And when John went on to describe his voice as the sounds of many waters, it illustrates really the authority that Jesus has and that his voice silences every other. Like the roaring of the river or the crashing of an ocean wave, that when Jesus speaks, his voice drowns out all other voices, leaving only his to be heard. And then in verse 16, look here, it says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went this sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And it says that Jesus was holding the seven stars in his right hand. And in verse 20, again, we're told that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The Greek word here is angelos. And it simply means a messenger, one who is sent. So we need to look at that in a different light because this can be referring to an angelic messenger like angels, which we read about in Scripture, who go forth from God's throne room. But it also, when we look at it in, the, in relationship to what the, the Greek word means, it can also refer to any person who is called by God and sent to deliver a message from God, God's word. And contextually, as we see 
Jesus, in chapter 2, addressed the pastors, the seven churches, as angels. The correct interpretation, I think, is when you take the whole thing in context, would to be identify these seven stars, where it's in his right hand, as the seven pastors of these seven different churches. And the fact that they are in his right hand, and, 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 and it speaks to us about this, again, it speaks to us about this, this coming judgment, That he's coming to judge not only world, but that he's coming to judge his church. Okay? And so in his hand is the church, but coming out of his mouth is the two-edged sword, meaning the Son of Man. Okay? The Son of Man, he only has to speak in order to defeat his enemies. And it's not a hard thing for Jesus to put down and destroy anyone or anyone that comes up against him. In fact, if you get a, if you want to read ahead, go to... Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation chapter 19, we're told that the nations are going to rise up against Jesus with all their, their forces, you know, and all their technology, all their weaponry, and all of their armies. You know what? And Jesus will use this sword that comes out of his mouth to defeat him, meaning he will speak, and by his word they will be destroyed. And the final thing that John tells of seeing when he sees Jesus and when he saw Jesus was that, look at his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And this should remind us, I think, of when Jesus was in, when Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 were told that he had taken three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. He had taken them to the top of a high mountain and then he was transfigured before them. Literally, Jesus allowed for them to see him in this similar glorified state. And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And I point this out because at the end of this book, in Revelation chapter 21, we're told that when the new heaven, guys, when the new heaven and when the new earth are made, that there is no longer a need for the sun. Why? Because light will come forth from the glory of God saying, the Lamb, the Son of God, is its light. And obviously this vision of Christ was totally different in appearance from the Savior that John had known in the flesh when Jesus had first been on the earth. And, and, and the Jesus that John saw when he was transformed into the future to the, to the, to, when he was transported to, to the future, to the Lord's day, that this Jesus was no longer the gentle Jewish carpenter that, Jesus, that, that John once knew. He was not the lamb who had gone silently to the cross. He is, as we're seeing here, the lion of the tribe of Judah, which the Old Testament also talks about. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the risen, glorified, and exalted Son of God. He is the all-powerful king who defeats his enemies simply by speaking the word. He is the priest who has the authority to judge all men, beginning with his own people, us, and John goes on to tell us what he did when he saw him. And in verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but, I, but, but he laid his right hand on me and said to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And of course, there's some other things that Jesus went on to say. But Seth, if you want to come up in closing, I want to point out that in verse 17, we are told that upon seeing this powerful, glorified Jesus, 
John in verse 17 tells us that he in great fear fell to the ground before the feet of Jesus. Just He says, just like a person who was dead, just like a person whose life had left them. But the thing to take note of in these verses, I don't know where Seth went, maybe not. Okay, the thing to take note of in these verses is that even though Jesus who is full of power, even though Jesus who is full of might and is very fearful to behold, he is still the compassionate, gentle, and loving Savior who reaches out his hand put his hand upon John and comforted and telling John, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. John had heard, he had seen, and he had fallen, but then he was touched by Jesus. He was reassured. He was revived. And you know what? And John had no reason to fear. John had no reason to fear. And likewise, we have put our faith in Jesus, guys. We have no reason to fear. Anything in this world, we have no reason to fear. Why? Because we put our, we put our faith in Jesus. But we do need, guys, and this is so important, I think it's lacking in, in the church and probably lacking in our lives. <clears throat> we need to be in awe. We need to have a high reverence and respect for Jesus who stands before us, his church in all of his splendor, in all of his glory. We need to see Jesus as the highly exalted one. We need to bend our knees and fall on our faces before him and worship him. Why? Because he's the first. He's the last. He's the one who holds the keys of Hades and death. And let me give you a, a clear depiction of this. These keys that he holds, it's not to lock people up, it's to set people free. He opens the doors. And the doors that he opens for people, no man can close. He's opened the doors for us, he set us free. And that's what he comes to do setting us free from sin, setting us free from, from the things that hold us. In bondage. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that your son Jesus has come to save us. We're grateful, God, that we are free people and we stand in awe of you again today with love and respect and reverence for who you are. And God, we're so grateful that we're on your team, <laughs> that you're for us, that you're not against us. And Lord, this, this picture that's depicted for us the things that John saw, Lord, may they, may they take hold of our heart, of our minds, and may it influence and affect the way we live. Lord, we love you, we worship you, we anticipate and look expectant for your return. And Lord, as we even prepare our hearts and minds, again, getting a glimpse of who you are of, and, and, and of what you're coming to do, and as we go forward into the next few chapters to see, God, these disciplinary actions that you've taken against your church and things that you want to discipline us in, I pray, God, that we would stand in awe and reverence and a willingness to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.